Maybe I'm not visionary enough. Damn it, Jerry. Fine, advanced intelligence work there, Lou. That's nation-state-level shit right there. Oh, my God. We have to deal with things as they are, not as we want them to be. The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. All right, you ready? Yes. All right, here we go. Today is Monday, September 15th, 2014. And this is episode 84 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. Hope you're doing well. I'm sorry to hear that your microwave committed sipaku. Yes, in grand fashion. I, uh, I blame your children. I'm not sure how or why. I'm sure it was their fault. <laughs> no question. Ah, so uh, as usual, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast uh, belong to us and not to our respective employers. So please don't uh, go bother them about what you hear here. And uh, by the way, if you do like this podcast, you know, give us some love on iTunes. It uh, definitely helps get us uh, get us up the the rankings, and uh, you know, that's that's always good. So moving into our uh, in, into our stories, actually, you know, this was something that. Uh, kind of like last week, we had some late breaking news. The late breaking news this week is that J.P. Morgan Chase finally admitted today that they were in fact compromised, and they put up a page and they apologize and they say that uh, you know, of course, there's no evidence that anything was done, and uh, if you, you you the customer are not responsible for any uh, inappropriate charges or fraudulent charges, and they're very very sorry. And they take this very seriously. Absolutely. So, quickly, what was the outline of the suspected breach that uh, they were denying? Was it uh, internal information, credit card information? What is it they think might have been breached? So, the the only publicly known facts at this point are that A, it involved a web server, and B, it involved the theft of gigabytes and gigabytes of data, and C, there may or may not have been altering of uh, customer records. And beyond that, we don't really know anything. Wow. So something happened somewhere. Something somewhere. <laughs> something happened. You know, I, I wonder, I got to tell you, there. this kind of reminds me of the whole NASDAQ story. I wonder at, at the end of the day if this is going to turn out to be like some kind of uh, industrial espionage type thing where they're, you know, assuming it's Russia, right? But th- th- they're looking at at more modeling their business processes than actually going after uh, account data. But, you know, time will tell. Who knows? It's true. You know, we need more hacking from Canada because they would probably hack in and actually fix stuff for you. That's true. And, and they, if they stole something, they would only steal one or two. They're like, hey, man, I I noticed you had a patch you were missing, eh? So I kind of put that in for you, eh? And uh, have a good day. Oh, man. There goes Canada. <laughs> no, I'm complimenting them. They are very polite people. Absolutely. So, to uh, to be continued on to the JP Morgan yeah. story, we uh, we obviously don't know anything, so we can't draw any conclusions or give any advice, other than watch your web servers for gigabytes of data. <laughs> yeah, gigabytes. <laughs> and know, they, gigabytes. They they could have sold a big log file for all we know. That's right. Yeah, we we really have no. <laughs> Ooh, you got syslog. No Good job. 
And, and by the way, if I understand the way banks work very well, uh, and I kind of do, we're probably never going to hear. So, you know, I did hear some talk though about various laws that are sort of, I should say, potential laws working their way through Congress about more expansive breach notification. So, not saying I support this being fixed at a legislative level, but that may change in the future. They may have to tell us more. Yeah, and we're we're going to talk a little bit about uh, in, in some of the stories coming up. There's some some interesting things happening in the U.S. Senate, so that that'll uh, I guess it's kind of a backdoor way. So, kind of getting into our stories for tonight. By the way, we're not going to talk about Doom running on printers. Just really? So you know. Kind of X that one out. It doesn't seem really relevant. So moving on. Our first story comes from Business Week. The title is Former Home Depot Managers Depict C-Level Security Before the Hack. So uh, the reporter here has uh, been in contact with five former Home Depot employees, including three managers from their information security department, apparently. And uh, they claim that the uh, the CISO, uh, uh, whose name is uh, Mitchell, I believe. Yeah, Jeff Mitchell. Jeff Mitchell, yep. Uh, who instructed them that uh, that Home Depot was really not interested in making material improvements and, and was happy with not an A level of security, not a B level of security, but a C level of security. And we're kind of worried about costs and operational impacts. So, uh, going on, the uh, these former employees claim that the payment system. And I have a really hard time with this one, so I apologize. The the the, the their payment system transmits their credit card data up from their POS terminals to some central server in the clear, unencrypted. Um, now, again, one thing I, I guess the, the one thing I'll say about all of this is these are former employees, right, who apparently left on maybe not great terms. And so, you, you, you know, we don't, I, you know, Home Depot's response to all this is we're not going to comment, we're not going to respond to speculation or rumors or things like that. But, you know, the point is we don't. We don't know where the line of truth is, uh, and maybe that'll come out, maybe it won't. But but in any event, kind of going on with what's been reported here, the credit card data is allegedly not being encrypted as it goes from the pause terminals up to the uh, to their server. Although apparently that may not have actually been um, really material to this breach. And uh, we'll talk about that more in the next story. Uh, but they had apparently purchased a tool, which uh, they say came from Voltage, that would actually perform that encryption. Although current employees contacted by these former employees say that that tool has not yet been implemented. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, Symantec earlier this year had performed a health check, uh, they say about two months ago, and identified that uh, the... AV that they were using is out of date, and uh, turns out they're using SEP 11, which goes end of life, I think, if memory serves, uh, early next year. Uh, and although 
I think their customers, Symantec's customers, have been strongly urged to move off of Step 11 for for quite some time now. So that's not great. Um, so yeah, there's there's some consternation that the CISO has uh, you know has created some uh, difficult work environment based on uh, on not approving recommendations to improve their security and again quoting the the stated desire for sea level not not anything higher and allegedly that's driven a lot of people out of uh, out of that relatively small business i think they say that uh, several i think the quote was several dozen people over the past 3 years have left the department of 50 so that's kind of interesting yeah, I have to be careful here because I've had previous work interactions with uh, Jeff Mitchell and Home Depot. So everything I may say has nothing to do with my own personal experiences. Let me put that out there. So don't sue me. But um, the rumor mill is rife with uh, very negative comments about uh, Jeff Mitchell and um, the way Home Depot has been going about their InfoSec work for the past three years since Jeff came on board. Uh, this is nothing new to those of us in the Atlanta InfoSec community. It's a common, common, common heard comment throughout many, many, many vendors who try to work with Home Depot. Uh, but one thing that I find interesting is we often talk about security has to meet the needs of the organization and security needs to embrace whatever the risk tolerance and level of the organization is. So let's take a step back and look at that pragmatically. In this case, the organization through Jeff Mitchell has said, we care about C-level security. And that is the organization's choice. Right. But part of what that did was drive a lot of talent out of the security organization. I know a lot of people have left Home Depot, InfoSec, and gone elsewhere. Uh, so that is actually something to, to consider is you can't necessarily retain good talent if you're not going to do anything in your InfoSec community uh, or in your InfoSec department, if you're not going to invest in tools or if you're going to make your team feel like they are set up to fail. So that is another thing to consider. You're not going to be able to retain and attract uh, high-level talent if you're going to be a mediocre InfoSec organization. That's a good point. You know the 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 thing that struck me, and and I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it from that that context. It, it occurred to me that you know, again, IT security, as we talked about, as we talk about all the time, is a trade off, right? And and each business has to make that decision for themselves. And sometimes we don't always agree with decisions that are are being made. And and what what occurred to me when I read some of these. Uh, you know, some of the, the, the statements is it kind of reads like someone who has a bit of an ax to grind and saying, you know, I, I told you so. But at the same time, companies have to make strategic decisions. And, you know, we, we can, we can sit here in, in armchair quarterback what Home Depot did or didn't do now in, in the aftermath. But, you know, they, they probably had some, I, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, right? I'm assuming they did had have some business reason for uh, for setting their level of, of investment at the point they did. And, you know, I, maybe we could say that that wasn't adequate. I don't know. You know, that's 
ultimately going to be for them to figure out now that they've had this happen? Well, I think there's there's two pieces of that. There's one, there's a level of investment, and there's also the way that management handles that discussion. Now, I, that's you, you brought up a good point, and I, I hadn't really considered that aspect of it. You're right, because it's it's that goes back to that whole uh, the the whole uh, saying about if you're if you have the uh, responsibility but not the authority, you are right. <laughs> you are uh, the patsy. And again, I will reiterate: uh, it's an oft commented rumor and experience that Mr. Mitchell is very rough around the edges to deal with. Uh, again, I'm just reporting here. Yeah, but then again, so am so, I. So. <laughs> uh, the thing that occurs to me as well is when I compare and contrast Target versus Home Depot, I don't recall many hit jobs coming out on Target security executives like we're seeing on the Home Depot security executive. No, that's true. I, I think there's a lot right. of pissed off ex-employees who uh, said for years this was going to happen. Yep. And uh, it's very interesting watching from the outside with no in- insider knowledge whatsoever, but just watching comments being made on Twitter by, you know, because Home Depot's in my backyard. So it's, it's you know, they're, they're headquartered in Atlanta. The InfoSec group is primarily in Atlanta. And so a lot of those folks are around. Mm-hmm. And... Some of them are even working for companies that are currently contracted to help Home Depot. Right. Uh, and, and I do want to comment on that again, because this is something that's been getting a lot of speculation, is if you are dealing with what may be the largest retail breach, why, with all due respect to Symantec and Fishnet, they're not considered the premier breach investigation and response organizations available? And that's who you go to, and that's who you put out as a press release. It feels like there's a detachment from common knowledge as to who the best bodies are to pull into an organization. You know, at this level. Yeah, I had that. I had that discussion with uh, Martin Fisher on Twitter. You know, Symantec made earlier this year with when they made that uh, antivirus is dead deal on, on uh, CNBC or Forbes or wherever it was, um, you know, they, they, they clearly were making, going to make a big push into the incident response market. And I, you know, I, I can only theorize that assuming that's ex- actually what happened. I'm not, I've actually heard something to the contrary and I'll, after we're done, I'll, I'll let you know what, what that was, that there may have been another <laughs> player involved, uh, based on some other, uh, uh, other contacts I have, uh, you know, if 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 it was Symantec, I I would assume that Symantec probably sold them, you know, sold them on it, and, and they're their strategic security partner, and so of course you would go with us. <laughs> so, right? so is it possible that Home Depot is saying, Symantec, your butt's on the line, you caused this, get in here and fix it? Yeah, they caused it by making Home Depot run CEP eleven. I. Purely speculating, right? Of the mindset of, you know, executives at Home Depot. Well, that that would fit. I mean, that would uh, obviously. I don't know the executives at Home Depot from from anybody else, but that that is an often uh, 
you know, played out kind of executive tactic, right? Where you, you hold your vendors to the fire. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. It's going to be really interesting to see it get played out. Uh, and and uh, speaking of that, the, the next article we have is also about Home Depot. It's also from Business Week, and the title is Home Depot Malware Hints at Different Hackers and Targets. So for a while in the early days, there was a lot of discussion that this was probably the same kind of malware, same maybe even the same attacker, because, you know, it seems like it's a RAM scraping malware on, you know, many thousands of pause terminals across thousands of, of retail locations and, you know, same kind of footprint. Cards were sold on the same black market. Uh, yeah, but but some more deeper analysis, more analysis has started to point out that it might be a different person. I'm a, I'm a little skeptical, and I'll get back to that in a second. But th- this particular piece of malware that hit Home Depot is now being called Framework POS. And allegedly, it tries to, tries to hide itself as a McAfee antivirus component, which I find really, really odd because we very well know that Home Depot used Symantec. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. And an analysis of the actual malware points out that there's a lot of anti-American, uh, statements in, embedded in the malware, which, which kind of makes it seem somewhat politically motivated. Uh, the malware apparently works slightly different in the way that it, it skims credit cards out of the memory. And by the way, it's interesting to me that Given the context of what we learned in the other story, or what we think we learned in the other story about the cards not being encrypted as they're being transported, it's interesting to see that they did, in fact, apparently use uh, RAM scrapers here. So, uh, so, so that's uh, that's also kind of interesting. Um, what one of the really interesting things I find is that in the bottom of this article, they point out that a couple of U.S. senators has written a letter to the, I guess it's the CIO or CISO of Home Depot, asking for them to come give an update to the Senate on the the progress of their investigation. And I think Target had to do a similar, if if memory serves, I think Target did a similar similar thing. And uh, I believe they also sent a letter to Apple, which gives me the giggles a little bit. but you know, uh, so it'll be interesting to see if if uh, if Home Depot actually does go make a presentation to the Senate. We may, in fact, learn a little more about what's going on. Yeah, you know, the one thing I would point out here is that all indications are this is a very similar type of attack as what we saw at Target, which, frankly, even more shame on Home Depot. Yes, when you've got a very well researched, very well-documented, very extensively talked about breach at a major retailer like Target. All that information's readily available. We've talked about it repeatedly on the show, not that we're the source of all InfoSec knowledge. But point is, this is not arcane knowledge. It's easy to figure out what happened at, at Target at this point. For them to get hit by basically the same thing eight months later, eight months plus later, really shows me, makes me think somebody doesn't have their hand on the tiller over there. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with you on that. You know, and it wasn't just Target. You know, there's been, 
there's been a lot of this happening over the past, you know, since Target. There's been P.F. Chang's and Sally Beauty, and I don't even remember all of them right now. There's been, a, there's probably been a, at least a dozen. Uh, and, and you're right. You would think that if you're a national retailer, a high-profile Target, and by the way, you just had Symantec out looking at your crap, that maybe you would... You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm. A, it's it's always easier in in hindsight, right? To to uh, to see. Yeah, the, yeah. We're poking signal. holes from the outside, but I, I the takeaway is, come on, guys. Just when you watch somebody else get completely owned by something, maybe check if you're also susceptible. Right. Right. We don't want to freak from out. Other people's. Yeah, learn from other people's failures at least. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we don't want to freak out every time there's, uh, the, you know, there's something happen. But when you start to see a, a trend line like, like this, you, you may want to go and and do some introspection. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a slight focus on point of sale right now. Yeah. Now the other thing that I want to go back to is, I, you know, I wonder. I guess I wonder a couple of things. Why is it so freaking important to know that it's a different attacker than, than target? Um, and the other is, can you really honestly tell that because they used a different piece of malware, that it's a different attacker or that because they embedded anti-American statements, you know, if I, let me tell you this, if I were an attacker and I wanted you know, I wanted to cause chaos. I would want it to look like it wasn't just me. You know, I would want to, I would want to, this kind of reminds me of the story about the ghost army, you know, sure. Where you, you want to make yourself look like there's, I mean, not necessarily you, but you want to make it look like there's a whole bunch of you, you know, all with the same kind of, uh, kind of target. By the way, if you're not familiar with the ghost army, go read it up about it. Fascinating story. Uh, I'll leave it, leave it to you, though. I would flip that question around on you and say, just because it's the exact same malware, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same group. Absolutely. Malware is bought and sold. Attribution is very difficult, guys. Absolutely. It's very difficult. And at the end of the day, I don't know that I care if it's one group or multiple groups or the same guy or whatever. It's not going to matter. Right. They're still untouchable. It doesn't change our defenses. It doesn't change what we do about it. We're not going to spend special forces into wherever this group is operating out of and get them. And they're certainly not going to be prosecuted by the government. So doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't. But matter. it's an inevitable question. People are going to ask. Oh, is the same group? Is it a target? I guess if you're a journalist or if you're, you know, kind of. At 10,000 feet, you care, but when you're down in the weeds, I don't think it matters. Or if you're selling threat intelligence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get my I gotta get my little dig into threat intelligence today. I was look, <laughs> looking for my opportunity there. That's a, that's a, well, that's because they're not selling threat intelligence 2.0 next gen yeah. with cloud integration big data. Right. Well, they're going to have to pay for the uh, copyright. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm fees for when they do that um you know the, the other interesting thing that just happened also today is uh the source code i think it was the source code for finfisher was released so i wonder if malware is going to take another leap forward 
Kind of like when Zeus, you know, when the source code for Zeus was released. That's true. So. That could be, you know, and 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 Doom runs on printers. Just want to say. <laughs> oh jeez. You know, <laughs> you know what would have been a lot more interesting than Doom running on that printer would have been. It's the Internet of Things, man. Don't you understand? Metasploit would have been far more interesting. Because <laughs> then we could see. We and could you could print out. Print out your reports right there. That's true. All right. Our uh, our next story. Boy, we beat that one into the ground. Our next story comes from CSO Online, and the title is Successful Security Awareness Programs Hold Employees' Hands to the Fire. Um, I thought this was right up your alley, by the way. Uh, you did. And, and by the way, I want to point out that this is written by Ira Winkler, and in full disclosure, Ira Winkler is on attrition.org's charlatan list. So just... Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So, getting on. I still think it's a, it's worth a worthwhile article. Um, so the, the point here is the point behind this article, and it's it's a relatively long piece, is that uh, consequences are really important in terms of security awareness and, and managing the behaviors that you're trying to drive with security awareness programs. And the point he makes is that. It's really, if you were to divide up the level of importance, it's about 20% dictated on your, what he calls antecedent, and and about 80% on the consequences. And so if you don't have your consequences uh, well aligned, your, your program is going to kind of be hobbled. Your security program is going to be hobbled. And part of that is consistent enforcement of rules, but also being able to detect that somebody's you know, violating them. And he, one of the things he points out is that from a user perspective, there's you know good consequences and bad consequences. And so if someone's not following the policy or, or trying to circumvent controls and they're allowed to do that, the consequence to them is their job's easier to do. You know, they don't they don't have any, in, they don't have any incentive to change their behavior, and and so those those are the kinds of things that you want to be cognizant of. Uh, he goes on to say that that there's really two, uh, I, I guess what I would call he doesn't call them this, but what I would call two leading edge <laughs> approaches to this. And number one is gamification, which you know lots of companies have have started to get into this. You know, you give away the iPad if somebody turns in the first phishing email or or, or the, the most phishing emails or or what have you. And then uh and then also peer pressure. You know, so so you want to uh you want to make your culture such that it's not just management kind of pushing down on them on on people who are misbehaving it's their it's also their peers and you know i i would say those are all good things but they're kind of situational and and they probably don't don't work in all that many contexts uh, especially in you know in in uh in online systems it, i i would imagine since most of the most of the examples he gives are like physical security types of anecdotes you know he leaves his his burn bin or burn bag out and it gets picked up and he gets yelled at. I think it, to me, I think that it, it works, especially the peer pressure thing works so much more, it works much better in that context 
than uh, than some of the, uh, the the IT type controls. So anyway, long story, interesting. He's you know, on the charlatan list. Keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, regardless of the charlatan list, not that I'm discrediting that at all, but I think it brings up a good point. It's something I've seen over and over again, and why I'm not a huge fan of user education is your only thing, but also one thing I've seen over and over again is security policies and controls that are based on human behavior. If there are no consequences, they often are quickly ignored. And especially in certain segments of the organization, executives, sales, uh, you know, IT, those folks are known to just sort of screw them, especially executive and sales because they kind of, uh, often in many organizations don't necessarily are held, have to pay attention to the same rules or held to the same standard. Uh, and I'm not trying to be cynical about it. It's just I've seen over and over again folks who are sales folks who are crushing their number uh, but have massive personality disorders and will not be tolerated otherwise. But because they're bringing in the bacon, uh, they get to stick around. And one thing I've seen often is when something gets in the way of getting a deal done, man, they'll go right around it. So one thing I have felt strongly is one of the things you have to measure in an organization in terms of the culture is how uh, realistic are they in enforcing their security policies and do they really mean them or are they just suggestions that when the rubber hits the road eh, they're not going to really enforce them Uh, and this sort of speaks to that right in terms of is there a negative consequence uh, to that organization or to that individual who is breaching a rule or breaking a rule. And the sad reality is the vast majority of the time, I don't think there is. I think that they are just, oh, yeah, we understand, but, you know, try not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying you start firing people left and right, but I'm saying any sort of policy or whatnot that doesn't really have the teeth behind it will get ignored when the pressure hits, and that's when those policies really are most important, is when you're under crisis or under pressure. Yeah, I think the other the other uh, thing I point out, given what you just said, is that kind of the opposite of peer pressure can take hold too. So if you see, you know, if you see your uh, if you see your executives walking around with their iPads connected to the company network, and you're not allowed, your policy says you're not allowed to have iPads connected to your network. You know that that speaks a lot. That tells that tells employees a lot about the importance of your policies, and and so you have to you have to be cognizant of those kinds of indicators, the the the, the signals that you're giving to your your user base. Uh, you know, I, again, I I I think that in general, relying really heavily on user level controls is just a a recipe for sadness and and failure. You know, we can you can do what you can do. I think certainly you want people to be aware that if they stray out of you know the the, the bounds of normal behavior, they're going to get they're going to get punished. But uh, in general, I think you really have to think very hard about technical controls uh, to to enforce your policy because otherwise you you know you just Maybe in maybe in smaller companies it's different, but I've been in big companies for too long now. So, all right. Anyhow, moving on. Our next story. 
Title here is Ernst & Young Accused by Canadian Used Computer Dealer of Data Breach. This one's funky. It's totally weird. So, uh, there's this there's this guy in Canada named Mark Morris who was, who apparently runs an independent computer scrap company. And he was a subcontractor for some other company who was a subcontractor for Ernst & Young. And apparently through this uh, his relationship with this subcontractor, he ended up procuring two Dell servers for $300 back in 2006 so quite some time ago uh you know eight years ago and he i guess recently and it this is really not very clear on the timeline here because i think it's coming to light right now because there's a lot of court hoopla going on about it uh but basically he, he this this uh, person mark morris found uh, allegedly a whole bunch of ernst and young customer data on these servers and, uh, At this point in the story, I'm like, okay, interesting. Somebody, somebody made a mistake and not scrubbing the drives. I would now veer down a different path than the rest of the story. <laughs> so, so, um, so, Mr. Morris has uh, has contacted uh, you know Ernst and Young and told him told Ernst and Young that he has received bids that uh, reach up to $1.2 million to, uh, to, to obtain the data on those, those servers. Bids from Bid, third parties. Bids from third parties. That's right. Yep. And, uh, and, and so the, the subtle insinuation is that um, Ernst & Young would have to do better than $1.2 million to retrieve their, uh, their data. So, uh, um, so obviously Ernst & Young, didn't agree to that, and so they've filed some some legal action. Uh, but in the uh, in the in the interim, he uh, he asked. I guess he's he sold one of the servers off to a law firm, and that server apparently had some customer data on it, but it wasn't the primary holder of the data. He still has that one. He uh, he has offered to Ernst and Young to uh, for the for the low low price of fifty thousand dollars. He would go through and delete all of the copies of the customer data that he made. So not that he will delete it off of the actual server, but you know apparently he's made lots of copies of this data. And for fifty thousand dollars, he'll go and delete it off all of his thumb drives and you know Dropbox servers. I guess I don't. Who knows <laughs> where he's got it? Ah, so um, so he continues, or at least up until uh, this court. Uh, what I would interpret as a court injunction, he has been threatening to sell the other server. Uh, and he, again, has sold one of the servers already. And he has offered to broker a deal with the law firm that he sold the server to. And keep in mind, this server was, I believe, used in 2003, right? So this is this is not impressive IT technology at this point. So, uh, so for 300... I'm- Personally surprised the hard drives are even still working. I know, I know. For $320,000, Mr. Morris will broker a sale from the law firm of this, uh, the secondary server to back to Ernst & Young. 
Uh, and, and by the way, there isn't any, there's, it's not very clear what's going to come of that, right? So the, uh, uh, on that one, the, the other server, the court has issued an order compelling Mr. Morris to provide access to Ernst and Young, uh, for Ernst and Young to have access to the server itself and to all of the copies, all the devices upon which he's made copies of the data. And, uh, and they have to go through and delete any data that's specifically Ernst and Young, and apparently they they're not allowed to touch any data that's not Ernst and Young, and and so he makes he makes uh, what I would interpret as a smart ass comment that it's going to take a very long time, and uh, he uh, obtained a agreement, I suppose, through the court that the uh, the Ernst and Young will pay him fifteen hundred dollars per day to provide access to these devices. This story is absolutely bonkers. But, jeez, oh, Pete, erase your hard drives. Yeah. Or or encrypt your hard drives. You know, I had this, I was having this discussion with, uh, with uh, one of our, one of our Twitter followers, uh, whose name escapes me at this point. Uh, and, and, you know, unfortunately, Encrypting server hard drives is not very common, and it was really not common back in 2003. Um, but it's not common because it's difficult. You know, it's 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 difficult to do in the context of a you know in uh, a relatively automated system, right? Because when the server boots up, we will somebody's got to be there to uh, you know to input the encryption key, or you got to have like an HSM. And if you're a you know if you're not a huge enterprise, which I guess Ernst and Young is a huge enterprise. You're probably not going to have that kind of thing on on hand. So, boy, this yeah, I just really feel like this guy is taking massive advantage of a mistake by by Yin Y. Totally, and it's unreasonable and it's inappropriate. But he's getting away with it. But I think at the end of the day, the Yin Y lawyers are are going to make this very painful for him. Uh, you know, I mean, don't even necessarily go to the extent of having to. Erase your hard drives. Just pull them and shred the damn things. They're so cheap these days. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the uh, that's the key. I mean, most I'll, I'll tell you, I uh, Bob, yes, Bob uh, works in an environment that has lots of sensitive data on servers, and you know, servers fail all the time. And uh, and and what is very common in Bob's experience is that. Uh, data centers and server rooms will have what amounts to like a you know a locked trash can <laughs> right and and uh you know you you literally when you want to take a piece of equipment out of the server room or the data center you have to remove all of the hard drives and drop them into this bucket uh you know it's again like a locked it's a locked bin and there's a reconciliation sheet and you know unfortunately Hard drives have all sorts of numbers on it, and inevitably everybody writes down a different number. And so, you know, there's Bob has many, many, many false alarms. But uh, but anyway, you're right. Shredding is the way to go. That's what people do. A lot of times, uh, you can work with your vendors. So if you buy like a support contract from Dell or HP or you know whoever, you you can get a supplement. Where if they come out to replace a piece of equipment, 
you know, they, they will always bring new drives. They, they will assume that they're not going to get their drives back. That can be a, that's an uplift on their contract. It's not an uncommon thing. Yes, it's more money, but you avoid, uh, this ridiculousness. So, Indeed. So, um, that was the last story. We did have a couple of pieces of listener mail that I wanted to, uh, to cover. So, uh, number one, uh, first, first question, could you say something or point me to an episode about how to implement two-factor authentication for your user base? Are there good packages that help business implement and manage it? Can they use Google Authenticator as a service? Is it difficult to implement for a small to mid-sized business where critical data or with critical data for their users, not just banks, but financial services or healthcare office or, or for example? And I would say, absolutely. Google Authenticator is probably not the best choice, depending on your size. But there, there are tons of vendors in the space. So I know that you're probably even more familiar with those than I am. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a complex question because there's so many options. At, at the end of the day, any place where there's normally a single factor password, there's a plug-in to do two-factor. Uh, it's a very mature commoditized space. RSA Security really sort of champion this space, but there are many, many, many vendors out there now at many different price points. Uh, most of them now have soft tokens that are actually... Uh, an app on your phone that you punch in a, a, a code and it gives you back a code and that code is your password for 60 seconds kind of thing. So it's pretty simple to do. Uh, cheap, I don't know, it depends on your size, depends on your budget. Any place you normally would do a single-factor authentication, you could do two-factor. Where you get in trouble is where you've got either automated logins or where you've got a whole bunch of different devices logging into an account on an, on an automated fashion. So, for instance, if I want to set up two-factor authentication for my email, and I forget the fact that my phone is pulling that email, I now have to figure out a way to do a static single-factor password for my phone, which can, in essence, defeat the purpose a little bit. So... You have to think it through. There there are cases where it doesn't work so well. Service accounts doesn't work so well. Um, but in general, two-factor is a good thing. However, uh, it can be an annoyance to some people. There is a, a political cost and a social cost in an organization to implement two-factor. So you might do it selectively. You might do it on certain key accounts under certain key data. Uh, it depends on what your organization is willing to sustain. But uh, yeah, it's... There are so many vendors out there offering so many solutions. It's a very much a solved problem now and very commoditized. So without getting into more detail, I guess I'd have to know what they wanted to, to protect. But uh, you name it, you can do a two-factor. I, mean, I would say they probably need to work with someone who, who can help recommend a solution specific to their environment and their price point yeah. and, and whatnot. So you know, VAR. It's not hard. Somebody. I guess. I guess the bottom line is, it's not hard. It's right. a very robust uh, solution. And, um, and by the way, you hit on something really interesting because you know, a long time ago, in a universe far, far away, uh, I was working as a director in an IT group, and my boss, the CIO, had, uh, was abruptly exited from the business, and I found myself, you know, in in his boss, the CEO, COO's in his office, and. Uh, told you know i had a couple of things to do and number one on the list was to get rid of two-factor authentication 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, I, don't, I don't think I know that story. <laughs> I might have to hear that story someday. Oh yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. Sure thing, boss. Absolutely. And I, I, I started to say, but, and he said, you are not here to talk. You are here to listen. And uh, given what had just transpired, I understood what that meant. So, so yeah, that was interesting. Uh, the second question is, is also related to this uh, follow-up. Is the existence of application-specific passwords a loophole around two-factor? I would say yes, although usually it's mitigated through some other control, like making it a non- Something that you can't log in interactively with. Audit. Audit that shit. Yes. Keep an eye on it. Report on it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Uh, next question is, I would like to hear from both. I, sorry, let me start that again. I would like to hear both of your opinions around using a configuration management tool, Chef in particular, in a data center infrastructure automation, or for data center infrastructure automation, and how would that affect security posture? Does it add to overall security or detract from it? From it, and why? And uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't know we were going into a four-hour show today. <laughs> well, I would say is it does both. <laughs> yes, that's such a huge question. The answer is yes. It 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 does both. It adds to the overall security and detracts from it at the same time. And I would say the biggest piece of advice is when you have a, cha- a configuration management system like that, you need to guard the crap out of it. It needs to be very, very well guarded because it is a single point. It's kind of like Active Directory. It is a single point of a failure that if it is, you know, if someone finds a way to abuse it, you know, your organization can get hosed in a in a big hurry. And by the way, if you think back to uh, to I think it was late two thousand was it two thousand thirteen two thousand yeah, I think it was early two thousand thirteen. The uh, the Dark Soul attacks in South Korea were perpetrated using uh, some kind of a configuration management system. You know, where they 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 literally pushed out malware to tens of thousands of, of workstations through some kind of system like this. So, um, but at the same time, when you have lots of systems to manage, it's a, you know, it's a very effective tool to make sure everything is running, you know, a consistent version and the patches are applied quickly and efficiently. And, and, uh, so yeah, I, I think the answer is both. That's my, my view. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think the ability to do centralized management is incredibly powerful for security hygiene, but I think you're right. Uh, you need to have a great deal of auditing and controls around that. And I would also say have a plan for if something did happen to that box. Oh yeah. That's um, a good point. If you, yeah, what would you do if that, if that were out of the picture? But I think on balance, it's probably worth it. Yeah, I agree. So I would tend tend to say, do it, but know what risks you're getting into. Good. All right. Um, the last question is in episode seventy six. That the item, a question from Bob on Active Directory, discussed in regard to what is an appropriate response if your Active Directory domain or forest is compromised. If you do any more thinking or research on it, can you update us with your findings or thoughts via the podcast? 
as it's something I'd be interested in hearing and no doubt something that the other 17 listeners, I mean, this is obviously old. We're, we're way, we're way beyond that. We're like 23, 24 right it's now. True. Um, you know, that, that the other 17 listeners would want to hear. So, uh, so we've been doing some research and my friend Bob, uh, you know, he has been dealing with this. So I've, I've been in contact with him and, uh, the, the official answer, by the way, if your Active Directory is compromised, you you're you're basically host, right? It's it's kind of like it's kind of like take picture a Windows server, right? Not even with Active Directory, it gets compromised by let's say you know some unknown unknown adversary for some protracted period of time. You have no idea what they did. What are you going to do? You're going to rebuild it, right? Why do you rebuild it? Because you have no idea what all was done to it. And it's really not economically viable to go figure that out. And a similar problem exists in Active Directory. The problem in Active Directory is even, you know, it's it's many-fold worse because when you have the Active Directory concept, you can essentially, the attacker can essentially not just attack one particular server like a domain controller, it's potentially everything in the entire environment and you have no idea what they did. Microsoft's recommendation is that you restore from a backup, from a from a known good backup, uh, which I'll tell you from, from talking to my friend Bob is, can be very problematic because a lot of times, these advanced attacks, uh, which involve Active Directory, and I use the word advanced loosely, uh, aren't detected for a long time. And if you have an attack that's gone on for a long time, your Active Directory is probably changing many times a day. I, I don't see this as a viable method because if somebody's really owned my Active Directory... They've dumped my password database, and they can now happily at will brute force those and well, come back in anytime they want. So, how does restoring from backup fix that? It, it, I think there's a, I think there's a presumption that you would change all the passwords before you before you would bring it back online. the The point is that you don't know i mean there's there's things like gpos and and extra user accounts and things like that that you have you just don't have any idea what they may have done right it's right. i think it's a it's a very fundamental thing that if you did restore from backup you would have to reset all the passwords because obviously they would have the ability to use your hashes uh you know for pass the hash or your kerberos tickets or or uh, or brute force your your passwords so yeah that's that's uh i think what about all the system to system level trust and uh, hmm. so this gets the more I research this the more I cried because this is it's horrible it's a, it is a real you know I, I'm sorry I'm jumping ahead go ahead no it's, it's, it's horrible yeah. so uh, so the other the other thing they recommend is if that is not a viable option for you you need to start over you need to rebuild with a you know essentially a small uh, you know, a, a small domain and start fanning it out. And, and you need to think about the order in which you would add elements of your business back online, right? And that's that's kind of what, that's what their crazy. guidance is. 
That's insane. And, and by the way, there's a great so so there's a great uh, summary of a Microsoft paper written by uh, the Sans.edu folks, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You know, their, their summary of this Microsoft document of just the high points is five pages long. I think the Microsoft document is said. You said is over 360 pages? Yes, with all the appendices. So, there, in all my research on this, the bottom line is it's a really, really, really bad thing to have happen, and it's not easy to recover from. And what the consensus I'm driving towards is instrument the hell out of it, protect it ahead of time. So, even if you... Even if you can't stop it, you know what they did because you've got to be able to roll back those individual changes because there's so many ways once you have an AD admin account, you can hide stuff anywhere, everywhere. It's incredibly difficult to ferret all that out. Right. And not just on the box, you know, out on other boxes. And so you put it out on some, you know, random workstation and there's nothing that says that you couldn't have that workstation rejoin your brand new rebuild AD controller and spread some malware back to you. It's really Ugly. Yes. Um, and, you know, some people are, are any sort of sizable organization looking at this one article I read, and hopefully we'll put it in the show notes, was factoring in a cost of a billion dollars to rebuild their AD environment. And that's just not reasonable, right? It's, it's, so at some point, you have to accept some level of uncertainty and some level of ambiguity as to whether or not you got the bad guy out. And then what do you do? What kind of controls and monitors do you put in place? It is a really ugly, ugly problem. And I think the takeaway from all this is uh, there are some folks who have put some thought around this. A lot of it is around securing the AD environment or noting and dealing with breaches immediately when they occur. Recovery from a fully owned AD environment this goes back to that configuration management question. It's kind of a worst case scenario. You are putting all the keys in that kingdom in one spot, and then somebody gets those keys. You're in trouble. Um, if you're a small organization, you might be able to rebuild. Any organization of any size, forget it. It's not going to happen. Yeah. It's a multi-year project. Yep. Um, so I think it comes back to prevention, which is kind of a half-assed answer. Because... You know, what if you are uh, a you know a breach response company and somebody comes in and says their AD has been hacked? What are you going to do? Get, what are you going to do, right? So I I would instrument the hell out of it. Yeah, uh, and you know start using privileged identity management tools and two factor and just watching for any 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 odd behavior. Audit the hell out of everything, um, and you know, cross my fingers, <laughs> right? And be hyper vigilant for about six months. Um, yeah, there, there are, I mean, th I think there are some things that you can do to, to help the situation, but, sh but again, you have to, you have to pre-plan for this. And, and one of those things is there's a lot, you know, I don't have any personal experience with any of them. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of tools that will audit changes to Active Directory. And that can help you in two in two ways. One is it can help you, you know, play forward changes if you have to restore from a from an older backup. Potentially, you, this could help you out with that. The other is if you don't know what an attacker might have or might not have done, 
this may give you an ability to go back and, and take a look, right? Because one of the big concerns I would have is is GPOs, because now you know I can <laughs> through a GPO I can do whatever the heck I want on your fleet of servers and and workstations. You just had my way with it. Uh, so if you can see that I did or did not do something, that can that can help point you there. But still, that's the absence of that kind of activity doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. Because, you know, I could still go out and touch these systems manually. So it, it's just a, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. Um, and whoever asks this question, you're a bad person. <laughs> no, actually, I actually, I asked the question. He was just, I take it back. Just ask him for a follow up. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's frightening. It's sad. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight now. Thanks. Look what you've done. Oh, man. Um, so. I sent uh, I sent you a couple articles too, uh, Jerry, from my research on this. So maybe we can throw them all in the show notes. Absolutely, I will. Uh, we could spend an hour and a half talking about this stuff, uh, and you'd all be bored to death. So take a look at some of the stuff, and um, I think really the takeaway is prevention, prevention, prevention. But we know that doesn't work. We keep saying I, we, I get we it. We keep saying but, that you okay, can't prevention, do that. Prevention with the concept of early and often breach detection. That's the key right there. I think is yeah. is uh, the, probably so, probably the best the best case scenario is that you detect it really quickly, and if you have to start from backup, it's just from yesterday. So instead of saying prevention, maybe preparation. There you go. So anyway, that's all yeah. I got. All right. Well, that was exciting. Uh, so, uh, yeah, one, one, uh, one more show after tonight before DerbyCon. That's true. We're going to DerbyCon. Hey, by the way, we're going to DerbyCon. Yeah, DerbyCon. We'd like to meet people. Yes. yes. We're, we're awkward and antisocial, but we like to meet people. Yeah. We may even look you in the eye when we talk. Uh, maybe. We're going to have swag. That's right. That's right. We do have swag. So we can avoid looking you in the eye by giving you swag. That's right. We can we can be awkward together at the bar. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, it, seriously though, it, it it should be a great time if you're going to be there. Look us up. Uh, we'll you know you'll probably recognize the uh, it'll be the paul.com shirt crossed out with uh, no no actually we did get our own shirts that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think we just either got each got one, so it might be a little funky by the last day. No, I got two. Oh, good thinking. Yeah, yeah, looking out for you, man. Anyhow, uh, actually, you're looking out for everybody else. Well, that's that's true. That's a good point. Anyhow, uh, again, look us up. Should be a blast. If you're not, if you haven't been, think about going next year. It's it's a really cool con- uh, uh, conference. Great talks. You know, it's it's not like uh, not like one of the really mega huge conferences. It's it's you know pretty contained. I think there's about 2,000 people. So it's you know, sizable, but not overwhelming. Uh, and that's it for, for the show. If you, uh, again, if you like us, give us some feedback on iTunes. If you have any comments or questions, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. Uh, you can find the show, show notes, back episodes, all of that good stuff on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at MaliciousLink, the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. And with that, we will call it a week. Have a great one. Talk to you next time. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. See ya.